0: The Gist is brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines, anytime, using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire Time, and hundreds more, from the back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash gist. And by Cameron Hughes Wine, offering luxury wine at affordable prices. To get free shipping and a free sommelier corkscrew on your first order of three or more bottles, go to chwine.com and enter the promo code JUST at checkout.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs>
2: It's Thursday, April 21st, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pascal. Let me ask you a question. Your flight has just landed. You're looking for your car. Hey, there it is. Good, right? Now, the car might be an Uber. It might be a Lyft. It might be a Pontiac. It might be a Buick. Do you care? Do you care who greets you at the airport so long as they greet you at the airport? Maybe you care. I don't care. I mean, if my sister's picking me up in Chicago, I care. But coincidentally, she's a teacher. They may be going out on strike, and she'll be picking up part-time work as an Uber driver so she could pick you up, too. But for me, for the most part, here's what happens. I arrive at the airport. Some Arab guy meets me. He's a nice guy. I've never seen him before. Guess what? This exact same thing happened to a person who really cares who meets him at the airport the president of the United States. In Saudi Arabia, the delegation was wanting. President Obama was met by a small delegation, not the usual pomp and ceremony often given to visiting world leaders. His arrival wasn't even broadcast on Saudi TV. Not even on the kingdom's state TV. What an incongruous insult to the leader of the free world. The airport delegation was led by the mayor of Rihad, but later Obama spent plenty of time with King Salman talking policies and relations. But I noticed something. I noticed something with my eyes that there was no hand-holding. There was, of course, no kissing. George W. Bush did hold the hand and even kiss King Abdullah, King Salman's predecessor. But this did not go on in this trip. And in fact, and you should do do this too look at the photos of barack obama he is interlacing his fingers while standing next to the king so i wanted to talk to the best person to talk about this with it's josh king he's the author of off script an advanced man's guide to white house stagecraft campaign spectacle and political suicide he was on the show a couple days ago and now he's on to play one question one question only hello josh Hello, Mike. So, this is what I want to ask you. I noticed this about the hand holding. Of course, we saw what happened at the airport. As an advanced man, how likely is it that they decided on this as a conscious strategy and the maybe interweaving of the fingers as a tactic? And how likely is it that they brought this up with their Saudi counterparts to tell them no hand holding would be taking place?
0: Well, as you can imagine, Mike, the optics and protocol of airport arrivals are always meticulously thought through by advanced teams on both sides. And, you know, there's plenty of precedent for the head of state or head of government to bypass the airport arrival in favor of receiving the honored guest, in this case, the president of the United States, at his office or palace or castle. So that's why there are chiefs of protocol to do that very thing now. You go back and read uh, lots of coverage of previous trips to Saudi Arabia. I've been on a couple of them, and someone has said that Obama has bowed at least eight times to, to visiting dignitaries, including the mayor of Tampa, Florida. So, in this case, I think he may have taken a lesson from his aides on Air Force One or upon arrival to get the old ramrod lesson, which is, what does a ramrod be? A ramrod is straight. So, stand straight up. In this case, maybe clasp your fingers, just because... There are photo editors out there, Mike, who assign to their photographers the very assignment of get the picture of the handhold, get the picture of the kiss, get the picture of the bow, get the picture of, of the shake hands. And if you are clasping your fingers and standing ramrod straight, chances are those photographers can't make any picture that could be misconstrued.
2: And do you think it's likely that the king knows that Barack Obama will not be holding his hand?
0: Well, I, you know, this is something we can both study more, but I think Abdullah was a little more frail uh, than the current monarch, yes. and therefore might have been seen as a helpful gesture by the visitor to hold the hand and support his host. Uh, but I think it, it was probably talked through, and the, the protocols of touching was touched on by both advance teams.
2: Well done. Josh King, he is the author of Off Script, which a uh, good interview about that on the gist. I recommend you to it. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Mike. On the show today, I spiel about the president who was usurped or perhaps usurped off the 20. It's not the president, you think. But first, if we're talking Saudis, we're talking oil. And guess what? We are talking oil. The era is the 1970s, the substance is petroleum, the author is Meg Jacobs, and the book is Panic at the Pump. You know, people think it's real simple to be true to yourself, to be cosmopolitan, to live with flair, to enjoy family life. And we're not talking about living the country life or a boy's life or in Martha Stewart's world. I mean for a working mother. What am I talking about? I don't know, but I named 17 titles that are available on the Texture app. I could have said, oh, Canada, but that would have given the game away. As would Shape, 17, National Geographic Kids, National Geographic Little Kids, National Geographic, Newsweek, New York, The New Yorker, magazines, magazines, magazines. Now, the problem with so many magazines is that they pile up. You can't get to them all. And that's where Texture comes in. Texture is all these magazines a hundred magazines that you can access via your app. Just like you binge on Netflix, now think about binging on magazines. Or not even binging. Don't think about how much time it will take because Texture also has a feature that curates, that can point you to articles you didn't know you would read, and that could also eliminate the stuff that you don't like. Texture is great for organization, it's great for access, and it's great for getting the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere using your smartphone or tablet. And the best part is Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash gist. What's the downside? I can't figure it out. You'll gain immediate entry to all the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Start binge reading for free right now. Clear out that old clutter of print magazines. Go to texture.com slash gist. You know, we tend to romanticize and maybe even venerate the 70s. Oh, the fashion. Yeah, well, it turns out a lot of the fabric's just not breathable. Oh, the music. Do you know Disco Duck went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100? Oh, the TV shows. Listen, try to watch a full episode of Bionic Woman without laughing. Oh, the gas prices. All right. That was one that was legitimately not romanticized. There were lines at the pump. In fact, I remember my first joke was based around a gas line where the report on the local news was that someone died online while waiting to fuel up their car. And I turned to my mom and said, what did they die of old age? I think I really meant it, but I got a good laugh and a social commentator was born. Here to talk about the politics and not so much of the humor about gas prices and the energy crisis of the 1970s is Meg Jacobs. She is the author of Panic at the Pump, the Energy Crisis and Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s. And she teaches history and public affairs at Princeton. Hello, Meg.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me.
2: So I remember this. I lived through this. This was more than an inconvenience. This was a time when America really looked at itself and wondered, are we really a superpower? Are we being brought to our knees by these Middle Eastern powers, by gas prices, by government that can't manage its own economy to the extent where we all fuel up our cars? This was a moment of introspection.
1: It was a moment of introspection and even more than that, panic uh, and fear. As you say, a sense that the world that Americans had, as they had known it, was coming to an end. The Great American Ride was over, as Updike writes uh, in one of his rabbit books. And, and from the gas lines to the soaring prices, people went out and bought locks for their tanks because people were so desperate they were se- stealing gas out of other people's tanks. The car had always held this iconic place in American culture as sort of the embodiment of what made America great. And now uh, the stories at the lines told the opposite. At that
2: time, is that when America had ceased to be energy sufficient? Was, where was America? Where had America fallen? We were once the number one oil producer, obviously. So how far had we fallen by the 70s?
1: It's both that we had fallen and fallen in a short period of time. Before 1970, the amount that we imported relatively small. In the first three years of the decade, the amount goes up to about one third. Uh, and that happens quickly and suddenly. And so when the Arab embargo strikes in the fall of 1973, everyone is shocked. People are calling it the Energy Pearl Harbor. So how did we get out of that one? We didn't. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a short answer. Uh, it seemed a little manageable for a while. Well, it seemed not so much manageable, really. I mean, it, this was a big problem in 73, a big problem for Richard Nixon, who had other problems on his hands. Watergate, uh, the timing of the Arab embargo tracked perfectly with Watergate. At least within the White House, they believed that the gas lines were the bigger problem. And there was not much that they did do and could do. Uh, they created energy czar price controls to make sure that we don't have to pay too much for this scarce commodity and not much else. And so the result is this odd, even rationing in lines that last for hours upon hours.
2: And I think psychologists have proven that odd, even rationing is worse than just say game, than just saying game on. It makes people odd, even rationing. If uh, you're too young or you forgot your license plate, if it ended an odd number, you could go on some days and if it ended an even number. But what that created is a situation where if you had an even number, or damn it, you were going into the gas line even if you were at half a tank full.
1: What we tend to forget is that the situation was so acute that there were other options on the table, didn't come to pass, but came pretty close. People wanted to distribute ration coupons like we had in World War II because at least you were guaranteed a supply. And that's hard for us to imagine today. So there was a tremendous sense of chaos, so much so that truckers who, of course, drove for their living, staged an 11-day strike in which they just shut down all the nation's commerce until they demanded Richard. Nixon do something, give them relief at the pump.
2: So, what was the idea of conservation or energy before this? In the late nineteen sixties, you know, and even before the Arab oil shock of seventy three, did we not think of it? Were there only you know a couple of editorials in Commonweal or someplace warning about this? Was the idea of conservation, energy shortage, was that even at all in the mass consciousness?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is is that just new. This was just new. The whole idea that small is beautiful had just sort of emerged. It's. Richard Nixon, who signs the most sweeping piece of environmental legislation at the start of the 1970s. And even he feels, for political reasons, that he's going to back this new movement. But there was no sense of a trade-off. That is, that we could sort of have clean energy and abundant energy. And then when it turns out that we can't, people like Richard Nixon, and even across the political spectrum, willing to sort of jettison that idea of conservation.
2: Was was it mishandled politically from the get go? And can you, the answer is yes. And can you diagnose what were the party politics at play?
1: The party politics were quite interesting, and especially by 1979, when you have a repeat of these gas lines in response to the Iran Revolution. Party politics is you had a Republican Party that's very hopeful after Nixon's big landslide re-election in 1972 that they can shift politics to the right. Then they're besieged with this crisis in which the solution from the Democrats is more government, not less. And we tend to forget this, too. The Democrats were still pretty strong. So you have people like Scoop Jackson, Tip O'Neill, Ted Kennedy, and their solution is rationing price controls, some kind of Manhattan project for alternative fuels. So the parties are pretty divided on this, and Nixon really can't resist. So what you end up having is this Republican administration that puts into place price controls. Allocation measures, you have William Simon, one of the biggest conservative ideologues of the last generation, as the energies are, who has to decide whether the Daytona should be 500 or 450.
2: Yeah, and that is, if there was ever a strike against what it means to be American, it's uh, lopping off 50 miles off the Daytona 500. But were there policies, were there ideas on the table back then that had a chance of passing that if we had just endorsed them, we'd be in a much better energy situation today?
1: Well, what critics said, people like Milton Friedman, uh, is if government got out of the way, we would eliminate the lines. That is, if you let prices rise, whoever could afford it could pay and there would be no lines. And by the end of the 70s, that idea that government has caused this problem seems to have sort of universal appeal, except for um, Northeastern liberal Democrats who don't want their constituents to have to pay more money. And so you end up having sort of a stalemate in Washington in which Carter pays the price because he's perceived to be doing nothing other than installing solar panels on the roof. So there was some enthusiasm for alternative energies. Uh, Carter had this idea that by 2000, we'd get 20% of our energy from the sun. Look, it's up there in the sky. It's free. It's great. But none of these policies really had traction. And the result was gridlock. So that Reagan comes along in 1980 and he can point to the energy crisis as exhibit A of the failure of the entire liberal project.
2: We're skipping around a little, but let's go to Carter. Did he seem, he seemed to, uh, you know... In history, he didn't say things that were factually wrong. He advocated policies that were maybe the could have been good ones, but he just didn't project well. He seemed overly impotent. He projected this notion of being a victim. He never said malaise in the speech, but he did wear a cardigan sweater in the White House. And he did decide no lights on the Christmas tree. Electricity is not oil, but we get it. Was Carter, were the optics of how Carter handled this crisis bad?
1: Terrible. Yeah, Terrible. Uh, You know, you read back his crisis of confidence speech, and it's hard to imagine that any American president, let alone when there's mile-long lines at gas stations, would tell Americans, "Well, the solution is you just have to consume less." And he gets on national TV and he says that, and it's not what people want to hear. So the optics, the uh, politics—none of this is good for him. He's perceived, as you say, to be impotent and ineffective. So you have uh, Carter kiss my gas bumper stickers. You have a gas riot that breaks out in Levittown, Pennsylvania, uh, with people chanting, more gas, more gas, and lighting local gas stations on fire. And there's a sense that Carter is indeed powerless. It
2: was a fever. And if you read the contemporary press accounts at the time, I mean, I don't know if this was the number one story of the year. It was just a constant story. And you, There was no getting around it. And a fact of life was that we were in this gas crisis and there was a fever over gas and our politicians weren't doing much to address it.
1: The problem with Carter is that he tried. Yeah. That was the problem with Carter. So he comes in, you're exactly right. It's the coldest winter ever. That's what makes his march down Pennsylvania Avenue for his inauguration so heroic because it's absolutely freezing in Washington. And there's an, a natural gas shortage. This is perceived to be part of the energy crisis. And that's when he comes on TV, wears the cardigan sweater and says, you know, Nixon said we had to dial down to 68 degrees. In fact, it's 65 degrees. And this is seen as a disaster, especially for the Democrats. So Tip O'Neill says, you know, no real New Englander would have put one log on the fire in the White House library. So uh, you really see this sort of contestation. Carter sort of prevails and insists that he's going to announce a major program, make this his number one priority, uh, the moral equivalent of war, which soon became called Meow, to take on the energy crisis. And all that succeeded in happening largely was tying up his measures in Congress.
2: This is American politics in the 70s, but. It ends with Reagan's election. What were his ideas? How much of it was just, I'm not Carter, and I'm optimistic? What were his actual ideas about how to solve the energy crisis?
1: The very first thing that Reagan does when he comes into the White House after making his inaugural speech, government is not the solution to, to our problem, government is the problem, is through executive order, he gets rid of all of the price controls and allocation measures on oil. That's the first thing that he does. And this is seen uh, as a symbolic act. Uh, uh, an act that is rewarding supporters. But it's seen beyond that as to announce a sort of whole new deregulatory free market agenda. At the convention in 1980, Reagan supporters from the floor wore pins that said a, G- a Democrat shot JR. So this is the time of the Dallas season finale cliffhanger when everyone's wondering who killed the most celebrated American oil man. And the solution Reagan said was uh, the answer Reagan said were the Democrats. So it was a common comedy- of getting rid of all of these controls that were seen to limit domestic production. This is sort of early drill, baby drill. And then the other big thing, which we haven't talked much about, is to project a more powerful image in the Persian Gulf to protect our resources there. As much as politicians, presidents from Nixon on said the goal is self-sufficiency, in fact, throughout the 1970s, we became even more dependent on imports from abroad. That continued and required then under Reagan and then George H.W. Bush himself, an oil man, a bigger military president presence in the gulf
2: was reagan right was friedman
1: right though about the price controls and about the free market I can say that politically they ended up being right. And there was widespread agreement across the spectrum from economists, liberal and conservative, that these were a disaster and that they in fact curbed American domestic production. The big problem of course, and and this is how Carter saw it, is not that we need to increase production, but we need to decrease our use. That's a whole different set of policies for conservation.
2: Economists know about supply and demand and one party talked about supply and the other talked about demand. As you research the book, how much of uh, the policies that we enacted were influenced by big business? How much was Exxon and Mobil and Getty and Amoco and Sunoco, and I can't name all the seven sisters or the American ones, but how much was them putting pressure on elected officials?
1: You know, this is a period, actually, where they're not getting what they want their number one demand is less interference, not just with price controls, but we uh, also have to understand that this is a period when the environmental movement and all the regulation is exploding. And so they're just feeling besieged on all sides and and they're not wrong. And then in terms of blame, even though both oil shocks started overseas, three quarters of the American public believed it was big oil to blame, that they were sort of enacting some massive conspiracy to change policy. That is, they were going to sort of that there were oil tankers floating offshore at sea with the oil. And once Congress moved to enact more sympathetic policies, the oil would flow again. And so they they had it hard in the 70s. Uh, Scoop Jackson, a Democrat, calls them in January 1974 in the same room as the Watergate hearings and all the executives from the big oil companies companies are lined up and he leads Jackson, what the press calls a cheat probe, and he holds up their annual profit sheets and says, you know, aren't you charging obscene profits and aren't you cheating the American public? And this line uh, resonates with the people. So they're not doing so well in this period.
2: Yeah, this might not be fair and it might be just a correlation, but not causation. But I would think that a conservative would look back in this period and sure, Nixon was in the White House for the first part of it, but the 70s are as associated with Carter as anyone else, I think a conservative would look back and see a failure of liberalism. And I think a liberal would have a harder case just because of how events transpired. And it was mostly, you know, if the ideas of liberalism today are the things hurting us, are deregulation and the influence of corporations. In the 70s, we had a lot of regulation and we had corporations that weren't so influential and things were terrible.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's the that's the short version of the story. You know, we think of Vietnam and Watergate as teaching us that we can't trust our political leaders. It was the energy crisis that taught Americans that Washington didn't work. And conservatives uh, were able to articulate that position very strongly. One of the problems sort of politically for liberals in this period, as strong as they were, Carter presided over a divided party. So at this point, the South and the Southwest was still very much a part of the Democratic Party. And this is where you had all the oil producers. So you had songs that hit the charts like Freeze a Yankee, in which uh, Southern oil producers said, you know, if we drive 75 and freeze them alive, these liberals, you know, will change their mind and let us do what we want. So you really had a real gridlock and division in politics at the time.
2: Although that's why I said liberalism, because back then the parties were less ideologically pure. And so the elements in the Democratic Party who wanted to freeze a liberal were themselves conservatives. And that doesn't really exist
1: today. Exactly. The book could have been called The Energy Crisis and the End of American Liberalism, because uh, you really have this sort of undermining of confidence in government. Uh, You know, so so by the time Reagan comes into office, people no longer have faith uh, that government works.
2: Panic at the Pump. Meg Jacobs is the author. Of the subtitle is The Energy Crisis and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s. Thanks so much,
1: Meg. Thanks for having me.
2: So whenever I hear about a great deal, I always say to myself, you know, is it real? And once it's real, well, why? Why? How can that? They make that good a deal. Sometimes it makes sense to me. It makes perfect sense. Like there's this certain mattress company that advertises and like I look at mattresses. I'm like, yeah, there's a space that needs disruption. And other times it's just a really good story about things that I didn't realize uh, that are ripe which is gonna wind up being a pun when you hear who I'm talking about that are ripe for the plucking. Wine is such an area. So I never knew this until I got on the phone with a guy named Cameron Hughes. And in fact, Cameron Hughes Wine is the sponsor. And he talked about how the best vineyards make the best wine. They don't always sell the wine. So what do they do with the excess wine? Cameron Hughes has known about this industry for years. He goes in and he just buys this great wine with the proviso. He doesn't market it with the label of that vineyard. It's still the best wine. It's still award-winning wine. So here's a price point. The average Napa Valley Cabernet scores over 90 in Wine Spectator. Average price, 155 a bottle. Cameron use has three Cabernets that score over 90 that sell for $30 of value. So right now they're offering you free shipping on your first order. It's wine. It's heavy. That's very valuable. This is for an order of three or more bottles. So that stuff's heavy. That's expensive to ship. You're going to want this discount on the three or more bottles. And they'll throw in a sommelier-grade corkscrew, which I love saying. To get the free shipping, to get the free corkscrew, go to chwine.com. That's chwine.com. Shop for wine and enter the code GIST at checkout. That's chwine.com. Promo code GIST for free shipping and a free sommelier corkscrew on your first order. And don't wait on that. That offer expires Friday. And now the spiel, gone, Grover, gone. So as we know, Harriet Tubman will now be, or in 2020, be appearing on the 20. Now, the man who was on the 20 was Andrew Jackson. And before him, quick, do you know? Do you know who it was? Do you know who Andrew Jackson replaced? Grover Cleveland. The question is why? And the answer is... No one knows, like really no one knows. The Washington Post first asked the Department of Treasury, hey, why did Cleveland get bounced off the 20? They didn't know. So the Post called the CEO of the Hermitage, which is Jackson's home, hey, why did Cleveland get bounced off the 20? Quote, it's a mystery to us, the museum's historian said. We did a lot of research. We don't have any clear documentation. They also surveyed a University of Tennessee history professor who edited the papers of Andrew Jackson. He didn't know either. No one knows why, but out goes Cleveland And in goes Jackson. I do know why there'd be a movement to put Jackson on the 20 then. He was hugely popular. He was held in high esteem. And that had been true for a while. 1928 was the centennial of his election. And from that time, 1928, for another 50, 60 years, Jackson always ranked on the top 10 list of presidents. Now we're more sensitive to his terrible treatment of Indians and his terrible treatment of African Americans and his terrible treatment of his own slaves. But even his policy positions were actually quite awful. But Jackson was bold and aggressive and expansive, to say nothing of brutal and vicious. But what of the man he replaced? What of Grover Cleveland? You know, Ronald Reagan was once told, hey, that desk belonged to Grover Cleveland. And Reagan said, I once played him in a movie. No, he played Grover Cleveland Alexander, the pitcher. But the fact that Grover Cleveland Alexander, born during Grover Cleveland's term, was named Grover Cleveland Alexander, the fact that Grover Cleveland Hall, who wrote editorials for Southern newspapers against the Ku Klux Klan and won an early Pulitzer Prize, the fact that these guys were named Grover Cleveland tells you something about the esteem that Grover Cleveland, the president, was held in. Now, here's something we know about Grover Cleveland Alexander, called Pete Alexander, the pitcher. We know that he had 373 wins in his career and 208 losses. We know he had over 2,000 strikeouts. We know he's in the Hall of Fame. They don't really keep a Hall of Fame for U.S. presidents. In a casual way, maybe you could say it's the ones who got to appear on dollars. And for a time, Grover Cleveland... Was certainly a deserving person for that position. He was one of only three presidents who won the popular vote three times. He won the presidency, then he lost the presidency, even though he won the popular vote, then he won back the presidency, which is a lesson in resilience. Of course, when he won it back the final time, It was one year before the Panic of 1893, which is a lesson in bad timing. And bad timing just may have hurt his legacy. Grover Cleveland was against the spoil system, was against patronage, was a great administrator, was a great reformer. His record on race was mixed. He did not extend federal power to aid in Reconstruction. He did send federal troops to keep white settlers out of land that he believed belonged by treaty to Native Americans. But... He supported the Dawes Act, which was disastrous for Native Americans. His attitude towards immigrants, like his attitude towards Native Americans, was paternalistic. He condemned outrages against Chinese immigrants on the West Coast, but he supported the Scott Act, which prevented the return of Chinese immigrants who left the United States. And if we look at his monetary policy or his personal dealings with money, we know Grover Cleveland could have used a $20 bill. And remember, in 1914, when he was first put on the $20 bill, $20 was worth $476 in today's money. As sheriff of Erie County, New York, Grover Cleveland had to carry out executions personally, or else he had to pay a deputy $10 to perform the task. $10 in 1873. Well, I was like $500 now, and he personally did hang a murderer or two in his time. The big amount of spending that Grover Cleveland did, the one that he was most famous or infamous for, was the $150 he spent to get out of the Civil War. This was totally permissible at the time, even encouraged, and Cleveland found a quasi-literate poll of 32 years of age, George Beninsky, who agreed to serve in Cleveland's place in 1863, Beninsky hurt his back, didn't see any major battle. As late as three years after the 1884 presidential campaign, Cleveland was still having to dog charges of not being brave enough to serve himself. And Cleveland said, when I saw Beninsky for the last time, he told me he had been sick and that he was poor and in need. Without any hesitation or question, I gave him $5, which he received with expressions of gratitude gratitude and immediately left, never at any time nor in any form has he uttered a complaint to me of my treatment of him. This was permissible at the time. Maybe George Beninsky deserves a little place on our currency, or at least in our memory. The great irony of Cleveland being bounced from the 20 in favor of Jackson is that unlike Jackson, Cleveland was right On the money, he opposed tariffs and he fought the silver standard. He fought it hard. We forget these fights. We don't appreciate the fervor. We don't really understand what the stakes were, but he was right. U.S. currency was backed by gold. He thought it was important to get out from under the panic of 1893 to emphasize the gold standard. That our currency would be thought of as good as gold history has proved him right he was right on the money and there in 1914 six years after his death he was right on the money 14 years later the 20 would feature jackson's visage and like i said no one seems to know why jackson was against banks and against bills and he was wrong on the money by the way in 1928 an andrew jackson 20 bill would be worth 278 dollars today Jackson did cut a dashing figure. He did lead men into war and he did not purchase their services to avoid it. He founded a political party, a political party that almost immediately after the time of his being put on the currency came to dominate American politics and it was gonna be on the 20 for a while. And now Harriet Tubman will take his place, which is just. And Grover Cleveland's 14 years on the 20, that was just too. Just enough time and just long ago to forget what a pretty decent president Grover Cleveland was. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi edits the gist with an intellect and a savoir-faire. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts because we said we want a leader, but we can't seem to make up our mind. I think he better get close, and we'll let him guide us to the purple rain. Andy Bowers woke up the next morning and Nikki wasn't there. As chief content officer of the Panoply Network, he looked all over and all he found was a phone number on the stairs and it said, thank you for a funky time. Call me up whenever you want to grind. And tomorrow we will be talking all about Prince. that man I've been quoting with Chris Malamphy. If you want to give us questions on Facebook at facebook.com slash slategist or tweet us at slategist or pesca mi, we'll be able to answer your burning purple questions. Au Du Peru and thanks for listening.